Fish Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Aram Layton, and I'm joined by the Bets Newsday beat writer. Still want to say Sun Sentinel beat writer for the Marlins and old friend of Fish Stripes, Tim Healy. Tim, thanks for coming back on the show. Anytime. Thanks for having me. So, of course, we first became uh, friends with you uh, over here at Fish Stripes when you were covering the Marlins for the Sun Sentinel. We did a lot of fun work with you. Of course, now you go over to Newsday in New York. You're covering the Mets. It's been pretty crazy, too. Of course, it'll never top that offseason last year uh, where you were covering the Marlins, basically fire sale, trading every one of their best players away. Uh, of course, that that was a crazy start to a crazy rebuild. That's been a process here that we've been covering a ton. I think people might even get upset that I used the word fire sale. But regardless, <laughs> it was a, a hectic time for you to cover. But the Mets now are pretty busy. They're doing a lot of stuff, but so is the entire NL East. We're leading into the winter meetings now. It's been pretty hectic. What's it been like covering this offseason so far? I feel like it's just started and we've got a lot of momentum going. Yeah, it's been, it's been very busy. Not quite as busy as this time a year ago, but with the Mets and their their GM change, bringing in Brody Van Wagen and uh, you know, his first move being the Robinson Cano-Edwin Diaz trade, it makes it feel like any, pretty much anything else is possible. So, so who knows over the course of the next month, month and a half, two months, uh, what's going to go down? Well, something already did go down. Uh, as we know, we know there's a lot more about to happen, but what's already happened, and I kind of want to get your take on that, of course, is the Robinson Cano uh, Diaz trade. Of course, Diaz was probably the centerpiece of that deal, being uh, how dominating he was of a closer last season. But Robbie Cano, I mean, still a viable second baseman. Obviously, he only played half a season last year due to the PED suspension. Bad contract tied to him, but obviously still can hit for, for power, can still hit for average. Uh, he's 35 years old, has a pretty bad contract, like I just said, going until when he's like 40 years old, $24 million annually until when he's 40. And that's kind of a reason that made me a little skeptical of the trade, especially giving up your first-round pick in Kalinic and a couple other good prospects done and a few other guys. What did you think of the deal? Obviously, they were able to unload Jay Bruce, which was a big win in terms of, of the financial standpoint. But it, it was a little bit of a peculiar trade in, in trading, kind of mortgaging your future uh, when you're a team that barely scraped the surface for 75 wins last year. For sure, yeah. I, th- I thought it was a pretty middling trade. If their goal, and it was their goal, to get better in 2019 and they have a win-now mindset, figure out the rest later, then yes, sure, it was a good deal. But it is a lot of money to Cano for the rest of his contract, and it is a lot in terms of prospect prospects. They gave up Jared Kalenic, center fielder they drafted in the first round this year, and Justin Dunn, who was their first rounder a couple of years ago. He's a right-hander. Um on the plus side, they did dump uh, Jay Bruce and Anthony Swarzak, which makes the money issue easier. And actually, with the cash the Mets got back, it, it, they ended up having a lower payroll for 2019 than they did beforehand. And of course, adding Diaz, who was the big win in that trade, uh, 57 saves last year, sub-2 ERA, .79 whip. Um, the, vo- the volatility of relievers is what it is. But his peripherals suggest that he's a pretty safe bet to continue that dominance, health, health pending, of course, uh, in, in the years to come. So I thought it was mediocre, but 
in the short term, it was a good trade, and they can make it look even better if they continue to aggressively add for the 2019 Mets. And it kind of brought up a conversation that we were talking about in in our Slack chat uh, with looking at the Mets trade there. When we were looking at the draft, it seemed like the Mets didn't really get their guy, and Kalinic kind of fell in their lap. Trading him a few months later kind of seems like he wasn't really their guy and I don't think they ever really had long-term plans for him. What, what's your take on that? Were the Mets in on Kalinic the whole time, and this is just a deal that they really wanted to pull the trigger on? Or do you think he, he kind of fell into their lap at, I think it was 13, and he, he was, or no, what the Marlins were 13. So I, I'm trying to remember what pick the Mets had, but regardless, uh, what do you think that wasn't their guy, and, and it kind of fell into their lap, and that's why they pulled that trade off? I think they were happy with him and they were high on him because, I mean, you don't become the sixth overall pick as a high schooler from Wisconsin, no less, unless you're very good at baseball, which it seems so far in his life, uh, Jared Klenick is. Um, and, and they were very hesitant. Brody Van Wagen was talking about it the other day. They, they didn't want to give up Klenick, but in order to get Diaz, if the Mariners were going to get, were going to give up Diaz, then he had to be in the deal going back to Seattle. So, um, you know, acquiring a player like Diaz always stings a little from the farm system perspective. Uh, but I, in this scenario, at least, prioritizing the near term over the long term, uh, the Mets decided it was worth it. That's hard to believe that the Mets had the sixth pick in the draft because now we're talking about them buying and trying to go all in. <laughs> That's what threw me off for a second there because I'm trying to think, oh, they had to have, you know, a middle of the first round pick. But uh, they, they're coming off some bad seasons, right? I mean, they just had the sixth pick in the draft where they took Kalinic. Um, obviously, injuries played a large part in that. But I remember a, a couple months ago, I tweeted at you, why don't the Mets just blow it up? I believe that was towards the end of the season. Uh, sure. You know, you have those pitchers. You could probably give yourself the number one farm system in all of baseball if if you trade away two of the three arms that the Mets have. Why do you think the Mets are going all in? Is it the pressure of New York? And do you think it's the right idea with what they have on paper? Uh, do you think that they can actually build something that's that's could win this in the next couple of years? I don't think it's the pressure of New York because every other professional sports team has rebuilt or partially rebuilt in the last couple of years or is doing it right now. And if fans are smart and they'll, they'll, they'll get it. They don't like losing teams, of course, but they understand the process. Um, in terms of, you know, trying to win in 2019, I, th I think the Mets were, uh, they were, Happy to see in the last two, two and a half months, uh, the improvements that the 2018 Mets made for, um, July one to the end of the season. The Mets had the best record in the division. Um, I think they looked at the Braves winning the championship, winning the, winning the, the division at 90 wins, the Phillies and Nationals having middling seasons. Obviously in the Phillies case, a very, a great improvement. Um, but the Mets saw an opportunity there because the NL East was so weak in 2018. Granted, now all of those teams are going hard this offseason, so it might be the toughest division in baseball next year. Who knows? Um, but the Mets looked at that landscape. They looked at their pitching staff, and they decided it was worth, worth going for. And the Mets definitely have the pieces, assuming that they are healthy. 
and that's been the big struggle. But the crazy thing is, like you said, is the entire NL East besides the Marlins seems to be going all in. But before I get into that, there's one thing that stuck out to me that's kind of ironic. As you mentioned, uh, fans understand the process. And I think that's something uh, you may take for granted because I can promise you on the Marlins end over here, it's pretty frustrating for <laughs> for us with a lot of a lot of fans over here that do do not understand the process, and uh, I've been bashing yeah. Jeter repeatedly. Uh, we always we we've probably we've pretty much just given up on trying to explain why that rebuild is necessary uh, to a lot of fans, uh, but obviously a lot of them have had their trust betrayed uh, in the Mets. But the Mets have as well. I mean, the Mets have had a pretty ugly. Uh, history in terms of some of the way things have gone on between Bertie Madoff and a lot of issues with a lot of the ownership. So hopefully Jeter will be the guy that wins back these fans. And I think Mets fans are starting to be won back by the, the new leadership that's kind of uh, riding the ship over there in New York. And hopefully uh, they can start turning things around. But of course, one way to really do that is acquiring JT Real Muto from the Marlins. Uh, we're talking about mortgaging the future. That's obviously going to be a trade that mortgages the future, excuse me, a little bit. But it's also a trade that will set your team up much better for the postseason and give you arguably the best catcher in all of the bigs. There's been a lot of rumblings about teams that are interested in him. Of course, almost every team could use an upgrade at catcher, especially to the degree that JT Real Muto would give you an upgrade. What's the latest you're hearing on the Marlins and Mets offer and uh, in their discussions, and uh, what do you think that it'll take to get Real Muto from the Marlins? Well, as as we sit here Friday afternoon, at least it sounds like it's been status quo for a couple of days. Where obviously the Mets are interested, and the Marlins, as has has been the case with every team, are setting a pretty high cost for the Mets, uh, needing one of those controllable major league players to center a package around. Now, a month ago. I, I didn't think the Mets and the Marlins would be a match at all for Real Muto because I heard that the Marlins um, didn't view the Mets farm system as being good enough, and you know I didn't I didn't think the Mets would be interested in giving up you know uh, an Ahmed Rosario, a Michael Conforto, a Brandon Nimmo um, in, in a deal like that. But now seeing how bold and aggressive Brody Van Wagenen has been early on, I'm not going to rule every anything out. The problem, of course, is that it's not so much about mortgaging the future as it is robbing Peter to pay Paul. Let's say, you know, Brandon Nimmo becomes the centerpiece in a, in a real Muto deal. All of a sudden, you have a pretty significant hole in your corner outfield, even if you do have the, one of the best, cat, perhaps the best catcher in baseball. Um, what it, in terms of those three players as potential centerpieces, Rosario, the shortstop, and then Conforto and Nimmo in the outfield, you know, it, it, it only makes sense for the Mets if they then replace that player they're giving up in a meaningful way. At shortstop, that's very hard to do because it sounds like they're not in on Manny Machado. Um, in the outfield, it's a little easier but they already have one hole in the outfield and center. So that would mean they need two two good outfielders. Um, never mind Juan Lagares coming back from injury and Jonas Cespedes coming back sometime in the second half, it sounds like. Um, so the Mets have a lot of moving pieces there. Um, based on the pure volume of teams interested in Real Muto, I can't say that I'm confident the Mets would 
see a deal through, see a deal through just because there's there's so much competition. Um, but it it's an interesting uh, potential matchup there. Is you know Conforto and Nimmo are good players. Nimmo has an extra year of team control on Conforto, so uh, you know I'm not, I I don't know what's going to happen yet. I, I think Real Mutos can be traded sooner rather than later because the Marlins can't wait forever. Um, but it's uh, it, it's an interesting pass, prospect, that's for sure. And it's definitely one of those things that you can look at every farm system and find a couple guys you like and say, oh, that that could be a good deal for Rio Muto. But a lot of teams don't want to part with their top prospects. Of course, the Mets would likely not want to part with Peter Alonso. Uh, you led all of pro ball and home runs last year, or and led the minor leagues in home runs last year, uh, probably going to be up if not in the beginning of the season, pretty early on. Uh, but talking about shortstops, talking about Rosario, the Mets have a surplus of shortstops in the system, mostly brought in as international free agents or number one prospect, Jimenez. I'm drawing a blank on his first name. Andres uh, Andre Jimenez. I was going to say that. I was going to guess it, and I didn't want to be wrong. That's so okay. I, went, I played it safe. <laughs> but Andres Jimenez, right? He's the number one prospect. He's a shortstop. Uh, and you have Rosario already with big league experience at shortstop. And I believe there's a couple other uh, top 10 prospects that are also shortstops. Do you think that'll make the Mets more inclined to to throw out a shortstop-centered offer or package? I, I think yes. Um, the other shortstop who's worth mentioning here is Ronnie Mauricio, who is far away. He's only 17 this past season and was mostly in the GCL. But it was his pro debut, and for a Dominican, 17-year-old Dominican kid to hold his own in the GCL and earn an end-of-the-season promotion up a level to a rookie league, that's very impressive. He's uh, perhaps He has perhaps as high a ceiling as anybody in the system right now. Um, but you're right about the, the quantity of shortstops. It, let's say the Mets try to center a package around you know, one of their two outfielders, Conforto or Nimmo. The inclusion of Andres Jimenez... I could see that because right now Jimenez was 19 last year, reached double A. So figure a year from now, he's probably knocking on the door of the majors with a reasonably good season. Uh, The Mets, though, don't have an obvious place for him in their major league infield. They have Rosario at shortstop. They have Cano now for five years at second. Peter Alonso, who you mentioned, We'll see how he fares in the majors, but the Mets are really counting on him in 2019. And then for the foreseeable future, he'll be at first base. Third is a little bit more of a question mark right now. Todd Frazier is under contract for another year. Jeff McNeil is an interesting player who probably could, you know, be a full-time third baseman or or, or stay as a utility guy. Um, But, again, Andres Jimenez doesn't have an obvious spot in the Mets infield of the future right now, as good as he can be. And again, he's a top 100 prospect. I think he was even before a good 2018 season too. So if the Mets see him as expendable, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him in a deal um, because of that shortstop depth. And there's a move that could make sense there uh, with Jimenez and potentially a Nimmo or Conforto. If you think that could get the deal done, I think it potentially could, depending on whether that Mike Soroka – offer is is true with the Braves of course I think the Marlins would take that top 20 prospect arm but in terms of what the Mets have to offer they're in on AJ Pollock so it could make sense if they think that they can get 
AJ Pollock. It fills that concern, like you were saying before, with the outfield spot. So you trade one of Nimmo or Conforto paired with Jimenez, who's an elite shortstop prospect and something the Marlins really lack. Uh, those two with a filler middling prospect that I think that could potentially get the deal done once the Marlins come back down to earth a little bit with their asking price. In terms of Conforto or Nimmo, they're 25 years old, and that's why I'm a little on the fence on that one. But because, I mean, the Marlins window is probably in two or three years uh, when their control will be up. They'll probably be due to re-sign one of those guys when they'd probably be fighting for contention at that point. But the Jimenez part of the deal with the Marlins have a lot to be desired in terms of shortstops in their system. It could be a good deal for them, but then again, they also have to address the pitching situation. So if you're the Marlins here, are you just trying to get the best prospects available? Or are you starting to try and think about what positions you're acquiring? Are you not even at that point yet in this rebuild? I think you still get the best prospects available. Um, you know, if you end up with a guy like Nimmer Conforto, who already have a couple of years under their belt, and yeah, you're right. The, the timeline question is a good one because take Conforto as an example. He's got three more years of team control left. He's probably hitting free agency right as the Marlins are truly good again. Now with Nimmo, with four years left, it's a little different. Um, so if I'm the Marlins, I might prefer Nimmo for that reason, unless they think highly enough of both players already that they're thinking, okay, if we got one of those guys, we would want to make him one of the – one of the pieces of the core and, you know, extend him for, you know, a couple years past free agency, you know, during his arbitration years, um, which would be a way to get around the timeline issue. Um, but, but yes, if to go back to the question, I think you are trying to acquire the best prospects available, especially if it's a guy like Soroka, who's a top 20 prospect and a pitcher, you can never have enough of those because they fall on their face so often. Um, that would make sense to me. I don't think the Mets by any means can make uh, the best offer, but again, the Brody Van Wagen and variable, how much does he want it? Is he going to get what he wants at any cost? That's, that's the question. And Brody's been so aggressive. That's the one thing like we've mentioned before. I think another thing that will probably push him to be even more aggressive is his desire to have JT Real Muto at the very least not being in the NL East, right? Because if he's not getting JT Real Muto, I think it would brutally pain him to see him go to the Braves or another team in the NL East and have to deal with Real Muto for another six years or so uh, when he knows he could have probably brought him in if he gave up a little bit more. Uh, that's one of those things that makes it kind of fascinating and makes me think a team may overpay in the NL East for Rio Muto just at the very desire of not having him remain in the division and wreaking havoc on his teams. That's the thing is, is I'm not sure how much teams are willing to give up in the NL East because they're seemingly all in. I wanted to ask you about uh, some of these moves that we've seen these teams make. Almost actually every single team besides the Marlins, of course the Marlins sign, uh, the number one international free agent in Victor Victor Mesa. But in terms of winning now, every team in the NL East has made a major deal. We had Pat Corbin to the Nats. We had Gene Segura to the Phillies, Donaldson to the Braves, and of course the Mets trade that we mentioned. What team do you think is, has made the best move so far and who has the most work to do? 
the most work? What those are two really good questions. The best move so far. Well, I, I really like what the Braves did in terms of one-year contracts for Donaldson and McCann. Um, Donaldson is making a lot of money, but it's only a one-year deal. So coming off his injuries in 2018, he'll be motivated to, you know, obviously play in another contract year and cash in next winter. Uh, but the Nationals have done the most in terms of adding Corbin, who got a bigger contract than I would have thought, um, plus two catchers. They're going to have a really good uh, platoon situation there next year. Um, so I, I'd, I'd say the Nationals have done the best so far, but the Phillies, with all the money they're willing to spend, Harper and Machado out there, they are absolutely looming as a threat. Um, the Mets-wise, you know, they're trying to win, of course, but in a couple of weeks, they could be in a spot where Harper goes back to D.C. and Machado goes to Philly, and all of a sudden their tough division is a, is a lot tougher. So there are a lot of, uh, you know, pieces still to come together here. Um, but I'd say the Nationals have done the most so far. And we have the winter meetings coming up. Of course, it won't be as hectic as last year's winter meetings for you when you're covering the Marlins and Ozuna and Stanton and <laughs> D Gordon all get traded. I mean, that's, that's a crazy, crazy time, but it's going to be pretty hectic. I mean, there's going to be a lot of deals going down. We assume Real Muto will be traded around that time frame. Do you think the Mets will, will make an AJ Pollock, uh, last ditch effort around that time and give him kind of that, all-in offer? Do you think they'll make any other moves uh, before potentially figuring out their fate in the Real Muto sweepstakes? I think Real Muto is one of the first chips that has to fall, at least Mets-wise, and probably on a larger baseball scale as well, um, because the Mets need to figure out how they're going to fill their holes. And if they get Real Muto, obviously the catcher hole is filled. But if not, then they need to get Grandal or Maldonado or somebody else. Um, and another tangent off the Real Muto deal is if they trade an outfielder, then yes, they absolutely need at one, probably two more outfielders. Um, so just order of operations wise, uh, Real Muto probably needs to happen before the Mets start to go down their other paths, but they're working down all those other paths simultaneously, really, as a lot of teams are, um, with a lot of balls in the air and just seeing which ones come together. Um, and then the other issue for the Mets is their bullpen, but that's, there are enough good relievers out there that that's not as urgent and not as related to a lot of these other issues as they, uh, try to fill in behind Edwin Diaz with all those good free agent relievers. The free agent relievers are something you mentioned too, uh, in a tweet recently, uh, you, you thought that maybe they could have signed a reliever and that that was you're playing the devil's advocate, I believe, just saying or that's something they could do. I've seen Mets fans also make that argument with Yasmani Grandal saying, why give up so much for Mio Muto when we could just go sign Yasmani Grandal? Of course, offensively, last year Grandal struggled, but you can make the case that he can put up numbers just as good as Rio Muto at the dish and he's a switch hitter. Obviously, behind the dish, you can't really make any argument in Grandal's favor in terms of defensive yeah. ability, although uh, he might be slightly better at framing. That might be the only thing he has over Rio Muto defensively. But do you think that it might be a better option for the Mets to hold on to the prospects and sign a guy like Grandal or go all in on Rio Muto and try and add Pollock? 
You're right. It's very similar situations in terms of Diaz versus the free agents and Real Muto versus essentially Grandal as a free agent. Um, any free agent reliever would have been lesser than Diaz and Grandal or any other free agent is going to be lesser than Real Muto. But is it is the difference worth it? Uh, you know, give, to give up the prospects or just give up the money. In the Diaz case, they decided Diaz was worth it to give up the prospects instead of uh, signing a reliever and preserving that uh, financial spending flexibility. Um, having already done that, the the Mets system being even shallower than it was to begin with, um, it wouldn't surprise me if they decide Real Muto is just too expensive and go after a, a money-only alternative and a free agent. Um, but yeah, I mean th- th- that's the decision they have to make, and if that's if that's the path they end up going down, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I'm not sitting here banking on the Mets uh, going through with a real Muto trade at this point. And let's talk about the Marlins a little bit. I mean, you're a year removed from covering the Marlins, just about, but obviously yeah. still have a lot of. Nine, Nine months. months. Wow. It, it doesn't even feel it, – it feels like it went really quickly. Uh, I still I, – like I said in the beginning, I still want to call you the Marlins Sunset and No Beat Writer. I'm so conditioned to, to say that. But <laughs> you obviously had uh, a lot of a lot of knowledge doing a lot of work with the Marlins. Um, of course, I'm sure you keep, uh, keep tabs being that you're in the NL East still. Uh, what have you seen in this last year in terms of – just the Marlins rebuild and the process and uh, the progress that they've been making. Has it been about what you expected uh, lesser or better than what you expected? And what do you think of the move so far and the progress that they've made? Uh, in terms of the 2018 Marlins, they were probably about as bad as everybody expected. But in terms of what matters going forward, I think you look at trying to figure out what pieces are going to be meaningful pieces when the Marlins are good again. Now, Caleb Smith, for example, before he got hurt, that was a win. You know, maybe Garrett Cooper, too. The Mets, the Marlins didn't get to see a lot of him, of course. On the other hand, Lewis Brinson had a terrible season, so you're not sure what he's going to be moving forward. I think you would feel a lot better about the outfield if, say, Sierra and Brinson both had good years. Um, but, again, the, the rebuild process is years long, so a year from now – we could be talking about, okay, yeah, question uh, center field's not a question mark because Brinson had a great year and Sierra could be a, you know, a, a really, really good fourth outfielder. Or, you know, it, it depends on how quickly those pieces come together. Um, you know, not all rebuilds are created equal, but I look at the, what the Cubs did and all their pieces came together pretty, pretty much perfectly. You know, Chris Bryant was drafted high and was a stud. They knew what Anthony Rizzo was when they traded him, and they had all those other, you know, position player prospects, and then signed a couple pitchers when the time was right. Um, so, in terms of the Marlins rebuild, uh, it's hard to tell how close they are to contending because the 2018 Marlins, personnel-wise, were just so far from what the next good Marlins team is going to look like, roster-wise. Absolutely. And I think it's largely predicated their their competitiveness next year is largely predicated on what they get in this Real Muto trade, whether it's a Nimmo Conforto type of deal where you're getting a major league ready guy or it's going to be some 
high ceiling prospects that are far from being ready, which is fine either way because right. next year doesn't really matter. But when you're giving up your best player for no immediate impact on the roster, next year could be even worse than uh, last season, which is kind of terrifying. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really, ma- <laughs> it doesn't really matter. And you get the high draft picks. Of course, the Marlins have the fourth pick in this coming draft where they're expected to take a bat and they could do a Chris Bryant type of pick. So a lot of really good college bats that uh, seem like almost as like Chris Bryant type of can't miss prospects. But as we uh, segue into the end here, of course, I want to talk about the upcoming season, kind of get your take on it. Obviously, there's still a lot of moves to be made, but let's just for fun here, uh, since the Phillies are the odds on favorites via Vegas to pick up one of Machado or Harper, let's assume the Mets just for the sake of argument, get Rio Muto or, or Grandal uh, and, and they get Pollock. Who's your favorite to win the NL East at that point? Uh, and is it the Phillies with going and making the major splash um, or could the Mets be dark horses? The Mets with their pitching can absolutely be dark horses because I think you look at the second half last year when they had the best rotation ERA um, in baseball. And if they had any semblance of a bullpen behind that, they probably would have been an actually good team. Um, in terms of division favorite, I mean, this might be doubling down on a bad bet, but last year I couldn't believe that the Nationals were as bad as they were. I kept waiting for them to turn it on, and they never did. Um, with them adding Corbin, we'll see where, where Harper goes. Um, I think they're going to have a bounce-back year with a top three in the rotation, almost as good as the Mets, and uh, obviously a lot of very good position player pieces. And, of course, you have – Juan Soto getting another a year under his belt. Victor Robles will be up for a full season. If they bring back Harper, that's a scary team. And they were able to load up the farm system a little bit by just trading those middle-aged uh, relievers and, and trading uh, Murphy to the Cubs and a couple moves that really didn't greatly affect their prospects for the future, but got them a pretty good return. And so the the Nats are a, a sneaky team in a in a good position. They were actually my favorite to win the NL East last year. Uh, well, that was one of my probably worst picks uh, in ter- in terms of what I thought. I thought the Mets. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the Mets would be good, and I thought the Nats would be good, and I was totally off. I did I did predict the Red Sox to win the division. I was the only one on the Fish Stripe staff, and I think I've let everyone know that a couple times, but. Other than that, it, it, it was pretty, <clears throat> excuse me, pretty surprising in the NL East. But of course, you're going to Vegas for these winter meetings, so I have to ask you. Yep. <laughs> this is obviously included with potential moves that you think could be made. If you're putting a bet down to win the World Series, who's your pick? I don't see right now how anybody is better than the Red Sox. The way they dominated the regular season, 108 wins, and then the way they really steamrolled through the playoffs, not going to uh, game five or game seven, or not going to a final game in any of those series. Um, it, ne- never mind the fact that, you know, the defending champs are the favorite until they prove otherwise. But even put that aside, I think they are on paper and on the field, the best team in baseball right now. People were saying that that was the most dominant season in MLB history up there, at least. Uh, would you say the Red Sox had 
one of the most dominant seasons in MLB history? It's got to be up there. Uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of talk that it was whether it was the best Red Sox team of all time, and I thought. Of, of course it is. <laughs> they won 108 games, which is a franchise record, and then they won the World Series. So I don't know how anybody could possibly top that. So, um, pro- yes, probably one of the best teams of all time. We'll see how history treats them, um, but I think it'll be favorably. And just to challenge you even more here, uh, you, obviously the, the Red Sox will be the odds-on favorite sure. probably to win the World Series. Who's your long shot? Not long shot. I'll, I'll rephrase that. Other than the Red Sox, you're you're trying to get some good odds on on a ten dollar bet on a bet slip. Who are you? Uh, who are you taking as your uh, you know your underdog World Series team that could get you a nice payout if you were to put a bet down in Vegas? Underdog World Series team. Let's well, the Astros and Yankees probably have pretty good odds, so they wouldn't quite. I don't know if they're quite an underdog. Um, I'd say the Cubs. They were they were down last year, but you know they were kind of like the Dodgers last year, where the, I kept saying they're they're better than this, and I kept waiting for them to get hot, and the Dodgers did, and made it to the World Series, and the Cubs didn't, and I think lost in the wild card game, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd, I'd say the Cubs. I, not knowing the odds off the top of my head. I'd probably have to roll with the Cubs. And I was, I, it was one of those things where I was waiting for the Cubs as well to start getting competitive. And before, before we knew it, it was already the uh, postseason. It was time for the wild card game. And that's why you really want to avoid those wild card games because anybody can win. I mean, it could be the Marlins versus the Yankees. And if they have a good day, they could take that wild card game. Uh, so that's, that's the terrifying thing about that whole system. But it's, it's something that obviously, keeps teams more competitive and do you think that's part of the reason why we're seeing so many teams in the NL East uh put down put all their chips forward uh because making the postseason is not as much of a stretch with that two wild card system I think it could go the other way I think the NL East teams are going all in besides the Marlins because the NL East was so weak so they like the Mets everybody else looked at the NL East picture and said oh yeah like we could we could be the best team of this bunch. Like these guys aren't that good. But in terms of trying to make the postseason and it being a wider field with two wild cards, I think the two wild cards and the wild card game are so unappealing because your season can end in a game that teams like the Mariners, who won eighty nine games last year and overachieved a little bit, are deciding to blow it up as opposed to add and try to go a little further. Um, so the. I like the two wild card system. Um, I like the one game playoff because those games are awesome. Uh, but in terms of the net effect of you know competitive balance and and teams rebuilding and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for the larger baseball landscape, I think there's definitely a debate there. And before I let you go. What is your final NLE's prediction? Of course, I'm gonna. I know the Marlins are gonna be last, but uh, from top to bottom, <laughs> what is your what is your NLE's prediction? Oh man, this, this is a tough question on uh, December seventh. <laughs> yep, I, I, and I'm gonna. I'm still gonna hold it against you. <laughs> I'll go with Nationals, Mets, 
Phillies, Braves, Marlins. Wow. So we're we're banking on a Braves regression. I think so. I think so. But again, it's December seventh, so let's see. Oh, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But I like I think it's never too early to start talking about it. And of course that that'll adjust as moves are made. But uh, that's an interesting take. But the thing I like about the NL East is you could shuffle all of those teams around besides the Marlins and no one's going to call you crazy. So that's kind of the exciting, exciting thing. And and talking about not being called crazy, you could also pick a few different World Series picks and and no one would call you crazy. And I think another dark horse I like is the Cardinals after that Goldschmidt trade. Uh, And I think it's going to be a slugfest between them and, and the Cubs and the Brewers to take that central division. And that's going to be something that'll be really, really fun to watch. But I could see some regression from the Brewers as well. Uh, but we'll have to see when that comes. Uh, obviously, the winter meetings are coming up. So definitely people can look out for that, for the coverage you'll be doing there. Obviously, you're one of the main guys uh, breaking a lot of the Mets info on the Rio Muto dealers or anything else. Uh, Marlins and Mets fans and NLEs fans in general uh, can look out for you in the next coming weeks. I think, you know, next week being the winter meetings, it's going to be a busy, busy news week. And usually aside from the news, I like, uh, you know, I just like the tidbits and the color from the winter meetings, the characters you run into. It's a it's an interesting environment. So uh, keep an eye out not only for news, but for the some of the fun, quirky stuff that come from that environment as well. And I'm taking a total guess on the Twitter handle. Is it Tim B. Healy? Yes. Tim B-H-E-A-L-E-Y. Yeah, I had a feeling. I think that, I think that's your account info for everything. I can start guessing that now. <laughs> but thank you as always, Tim. It's it's uh it's a it's a it's a pleasure to have you on. I mean, it all started about a year ago, maybe even longer, almost two years ago, uh, when you were covering the Marlins. We were having you when the show just started. Uh, it's amazing to see where you are now. Of course, over ten thousand followers on Twitter. Uh, all all it took was you covering. <laughs> Uh, a New York, I guess, right? <laughs> Leaving the small Miami market, and uh, I mean, seeing you uh, <laughs> grow your brand and, and cover uh, such an exciting time for the Mets is is really really fun to see. Obviously, we're hoping to get to that point over here in Miami, but uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Of course, we're going to be looking out for what you're doing with the Mets in the next few weeks and upcoming in the season, and uh, hopefully, we'll have you on uh, as the season approaches. Or maybe even if the Marlins make a Rio Muto trade, you might be right back here in a couple of weeks if, if you would like to come sure. on. Of course, we'd love to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, it's always good coming on. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. You know, it's always good coming on. Thank you so much, Tim.